0: Chapter 8 of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter 8 Wordsworth as a Teacher. Part 1 Man in action, and in relation to action and time, is the theme of Shakespeare. Man in spirit, and in relation to spirit and the eternal, is the theme of Wordsworth. The least transcendental of poets is Shakespeare. Of all poets, the most purely transcendental is Wordsworth. Shakespeare, in a phrase which was applied to Aristotle, is the secretary of nature who dipped his pen in mind, this and much else, but this primarily. He is preeminently the poet of this world, spectator ac particeps, in relation to its doings and struggles. Above it, by virtue of the comprehensiveness and completeness of his vision, by virtue of his seeing life steadily and seeing it whole, but the highest conclusion to which he has given direct voice finds its expression in humorous irony on the one side and in majestic threnody on the other lord what fools these mortals be is the note of the first and the note of the second is the cloud-capped towers the gorgeous palaces the solemn temples the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Footnote. Tempest Act four scene one and footnote. And like nature in Tennyson's personification, he knows no more. We feel that, could we have questioned him as to the fate of what death dissolves, and asked him in his inspiration, quote, Can these live? End quote. The answer would have been the answer of the Hebrew prophet, quote, O Lord God, thou knowest. End quote. But where Shakespeare is silent, there Wordsworth speaks a rapt enthusiast, a contemplative philosopher and seer, living by admiration, hope and love, breathing in worlds to which the heaven of heavens is but a veil, not with Arato or Cleo, but with Urania as his guide. He aspires to enter and unlock that world, the world of form, of essence, of ideas. Of all poets, the most spiritual and transcendental, with him the celestial and the terrestrial are as essentially blended that the latter is only in so far as it reflects the former related as intimately as shadow is related to substance all great poets are divine but to wordsworth is the title preeminently applicable in relation to the to theon to divinity does he read life does he interpret life does he speculate on life the life of the past of the present of the future let us think of shakespeare and wordsworth together of shakespeare as the poet of man and the world and the world drama of wordsworth as the poet of nature of the world of essence and spirit a time will come indeed it will when to many thousands those two names will stand at the head of english poetry matthew arnold has already given him the first place among english poets after shakespeare and milton for reasons which do not take into consideration some of the highest qualities of his poetry it is difficult to understand matthew arnold's silence about the significance of wordsworth's metaphysical philosophy and his prophetic insight gives him that place simply because of the extraordinary power which which he feels the joy offered to us in nature the joy offered to us in the simple primary affections and duties, and because of the extraordinary power with which in case after case he shows us this joy, and renders it so as to make us share it, gives him this place mainly on the strength of the unique power found in such poems as Michael, the Fountain, and the Solitary Reaper what will become more and more detractive from milton's influence as time goes on and the world sweeps more and more into the broader day will be the hideous and revolting anthropomorphism of much of his theology an anthropomorphism not like that of the greeks sanely soundly nobly symbolic but often and more than accidentally unsane unsound not noble in the serene region in which the genius of wordsworth dwelt how often how habitually he came on that which is and caught the deep pulsations of the world footnote tennyson's in memoriam ninety five thirty nine and footnote to him rather than to shakespeare may we say that the prophetic spirit spoke articulate things no vision of future utopia, none of those visions which even now we have seen realized, seem to have been unfolded to Shakespeare. He appears to have no conception of the immense future of the people, of times when the individual within and the world is more and more, of the new majesties of mighty states, of the power and the triumphs of enthusiasm in things spiritual as in things temporal, of what in a word, has been wrought since 1790, of what is now, in course of certain evolution, not a whisper of all this. If this is to be explained historically, so be it. But it is a fact. But the future will find in Wordsworth its forerunner and its prophet. Paradise and groves, Elysian, fortunate fields like those of old, sought in the Atlantic Maine, why should they be a history only of departed things or a mere fiction of what never was for the discerning intellect of man when wedded to this goodly universe in love and holy passion shall find these a simple produce of the common day i long before the blissful hour arrives would chant in lonely peace the spousal verse of this great consummation Descend, send prophetic spirit that inspirest the human soul of universal earth dreaming of things to come footnote from the first book of the recluse see preface to the excursion no we have not done justice to wordsworth we have not done him justice because we have not taken him seriously enough We have treated his great poem, all his poetry is one great poem, just as we generally treat God's great poem, the world, yielding ourselves to the sensuous charms, busying ourselves with its accidents and phenomena, enjoying a landscape here, a pretty dell there, a picturesque object, a delicate blossom, a stately tree, chipping rocks about, plucking flowers and delighting ourselves with the perfume in them in the case of the one in the case of the other calling out a fine passage a graceful sonnet or lyric a felicitous expression a dainty touch and this it is quite right that we should do the first object of poetry is to give pleasure the chattering schoolmaster abroad in nature and the poet is apt to be an annoying superfluity but let us remember this and if the schoolmaster reminds us of it let us be very grateful that the measure of our enjoyment of these things is proportioned to our power of really understanding, is proportioned to our serious striving to get true insight into them. Let us try to read God's poem in the spirit of Tennyson's lines. Flower in the crannied walls. I pluck you out of the crannies. I hold you here, root and all in my hand. Little flower, but if I could understand what you are root and all and all in all i should know what god and man is footnote flower in the crannied wall footnote and in like manner we should in reading wordsworth's great poem try to penetrate his full meaning to feel his full meaning say in such passages as these to me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that too often lie too deep for tears Footnote, Ode to Immortality. End footnote. Or all things responsive to the writing there breathed immortality, resolving life and greatness still revolving infinite. There littleness was not; the least of things seemed infinite. Footnote, Excursion I, two twenty-seven. End footnote. Truly, we may apply to Wordsworth his own lines. A mind that feeds upon infinity, that broods over the dark abyss, intent to hear its voices issuing forth to silent light in one continuous stream. A mind sustained by recognitions of transcendent power, in sense conducting to ideal form in soul of more than mortal privilege. Footnote the prelude fourteen seventy footnote to console the afflicted to add sunshine to daylight to make the happy happier to teach the young and the gracious of every age to see to think and feel and therefore to become more and more actively and securely virtuous this is their office he referring to his poems WHICH I TRUST THEY WILL FAITHFULLY PERFORM LONG AFTER WE, THAT IS, ALL THAT IS MORTAL OF US, ARE MOLDERED IN OUR GRAVES. FOOTNOTE LETTER TO LADY BEAUMONT MAY twenty-first, eighteen 1807 THIS, THEN, WAS WHAT HE AIMED AT, AND WHAT HE ASPIRED TO. WE ARE TO LOOK ON ALL WORDSWORTH'S POEMS AS FORMING PARTS OF ONE VAST DESIGN, HAVING A GREAT central PURPOSE, it was to deal with man and the world on man on nature and in human life of truth of grandeur beauty love and hope and melancholy fear subdued by faith of blessed consolations in distress of moral strength and intellectual power of joy and wildest commonality spread of the individual mind that keeps her own inviolate retirement subject there to conscience only and the law supreme of that intellect which governs all. Footnote from the first book of The Recluse The mind of man is to be the haunt and main region of his song. He should descend on earth or dwell to highest heaven, and breathe in worlds to which the heaven of heavens is but a veil. Footnote from the first book of The Recluse and footnote But if so mighty a work was to be accomplished, the first thing to be ascertained was whether he was equal to the task. He must first know himself, he must take a review of his own mind, and examine how far nature and education has qualified him for this employment. And so he proceeded to write his autobiography, recording his experiences, positive, metaphysical, and moral. And this self-anatomy is embodied in the Prelude fourteen books begun in seventeen ninety nine and completed in eighteen o five this preliminary work, which was to have stood in the same relation to the work following it as the antechamber to the body of a gothic church, having been finished, was to have been followed by the recluse. This poem was to have been completed in three parts. Of the first part only the first book was completed and that remained in ms. Fragments only have been published till eighteen eighty eight. The second part is represented by the excursion in nine books, and the excursion forms a part of the dramatic portion of the design. That is to say, characters are introduced recording their experiences, sentiments, and reflections in the other portions of the work the poet only speaks now no serious student of wordsworth will hold these poems lightly they contain some of the most precious teaching but we all feel that they are a failure failure in italics that on the whole they are bald posy and dull the thoughts are often flat and commonplace and inordinately spun out the style is often harsh and jejune. often on the other hand Turgid and verbose. Homer sometimes nods, but Wordsworth snores, and he is capable of snoring on for three or four hundred lines. There is one stretch of seven hundred. Go to the quote, prelude end quote, and quote, excursion, end quote. O younger student of Wordsworth, only when you have become initiated. Wordsworth probably felt himself that this enormous philosophical poem was and would be a veritable failure, and appears himself to have got weary of it. But now let us turn to the part of the great design which was not a failure, not in italics. In his preliminary account of the design, after comparing the prelude in its relation to the recluse, to the antechamber to the Gothic cathedral, he had said, quote, continuing this illusion, he, the author, in may be permitted to add that his minor pieces, when they shall be properly arranged, will be found by the attentive reader to have such connection with the main work as may give them claim to be likened to the little cells, oratories, and sepulchral recesses ordinarily included in those edifices. End quote. we shall do well to remember this we need not press too closely for of course wordsworth composed fragmentarily as the mood and the incident inspired and we need not let any continuous attention to the relation in which particular poems stand to the whole to interfere with our enjoyment but for all that it is well to remember just as it is very easy to see that all his poems are parts of one great whole Nature and man, then, are his themes. We have learnt to associate him so entirely with nature, as nature is generally understood, that it is well for us to bear in mind that his poems exhibit man in his essentially human character and relations as child, as parent, as husband, i.e., the qualities which are common to all men as opposed to those which are distinguished one man from another. This is undoubtedly one great and important feature in his work, a feature which is easily overlooked and worthy, therefore, of all emphasis with which Wordsworth has directed attention to it. But this is very far from being its predominant feature. This will account for the attractiveness of much of his work, just as his faculty of catching and rendering, so wonderfully the power and charm of nature will account also for another part of that attractiveness. But we know, just as he knew, that nine-tenths of his readers would not know that that was not his grand mission. In the preface to the lyrical ballads, he said, in effect, of the poet that he is an inspired philosopher, the interpreter of nature and of human life to the uninitiated, that it is his function to discover spiritual and moral significance in objects and incidents, where the common eye sees neither the one nor the other. In his own magnificent phrase, true poets are, quote, lords of the visionary eye, end quote. And the work of the poet, in its most exalted activity, is to pierce through the obscuring veil of mere phenomena to essence, spirit to spirit soul to soul so over and over again he has thanked god for having given him the power to free himself if only at rare intervals from the shackles of sensuous existence and catch glimpses of the world of being there are two powers in the world about which a word or two may be appropriately said by way of prelude to wordsworth's philosophy the one is platonism the other is stoicism of wordsworth's relation to platonism the point to note is that it was conscious wordsworth had read plato the phaedo certainly and had adopted as much of the doctrine of the ideal i put it comprehensively as seemed to him compatible with truth but the interest of his relation to stoicism is much greater for there do not appear to be any traces of his having paid any attention to it i can find no indication in his biography that he had read a word of seneca or epictetus or marcus aurelius it would not be too much to say that the germ of very many of the leading and distinguishing philosophical tenets of wordsworth ethical and metaphysical alike will be found in the writings of the stoical school and where he is not stoical, he is platonic. Let us take first one of his leading characteristics, his pantheism, pantheism in italics. Wordsworth is a pantheist in one sense, and is not a pantheist in another. This will be explained presently. The pantheism of the Stoics may be thus summed up. The universe is one great animal pervaded by the whole, pervaded by one soul or presence of life. Into man as a fraction of the whole, as a limb of its body, is transfused a portion of the universal spirit. The individual soul bears the same relation to the soul of the universe that a part does to the whole. At the end of the world's course, the individual soul will be resolved into the primary substance into the divine being god is the soul the mind the reason of the world as being a united whole containing in himself the germ of all things the world is the sum of all real existence and all real existence is originally contained in god who is at once universal matter and the creative force which fashions matter into the particular elements in point of being God and the world, are the same. The two points will be seen in which this differs from Wordsworth is, first in its gross materialism, and in the absence of any distinction between the existence of God and external nature. In all other respects, the poet and the philosopher are at one. But what a divine enthusiasm animates the poet! This is an important point and let me give one or two illustrations. To every form of being is assigned an active principle, however removed from sense and observations. It subsists in all things, in all natures, in the stars of azure heaven, the unending clouds, in flower and tree, in every pebbly stone that paves the brooks, the stationary rocks, the moving waters, and the invisible air. spirit that knows no insulated spot no chasm no solitude from link to link it circulates the soul of all the worlds so capitalized footnote excursion nine one End footnote. again in tintern abbey i have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things all objects of all thought and rolls through all things and so again in the lines written in early spring to her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran End of that quote. everything is alike through all runs the same soul and tis my faith that every flower enjoys the air it breathes footnote lines written in early spring footnote. so in the poem entitled nutting where he tells us the shady nook of hazels and the green and mossy bower deformed and sullied patiently gave up their quiet being then dearest maiden move along these shades and gentleness of heart with gentle hand touch for there is a spirit in the woods so we can understand his mystic love of bird and flower the significance of nature's meanest and humblest objects we can understand the meaning of those lines in the old cumberland beggar tis nature's law that none the meanest of created things or forms created the most vile and brute the dullest or most noxious should exist divorced from good a spirit and pulse of good a life and soul to every mode of being inseparably linked and now we come to the second great point of stoicism in connection with wordsworth the living according to nature this is a virtue of Stoicism, the zen cataphysis. This was to bring man's action into harmony with the rest of the universe, and with the general order of the world. And it was a virtue which implied two things. On the one hand, the resignation of the individual to the universe, obedience to the universal law. On the other hand, it involves the harmony of man with himself, the dominion of his higher over his lower nature. Of reason over passion and the rising superior to everything which does not belong to his true nature so too when chrysippus tells us that all ethical inquiries must start with considering the universal order and arrangement of the world and that it is only by a study of nature and of what god is that anything really satisfactory can be stated about good and evil we see how near we are to wordsworth it is exactly one impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man of moral evil and of good than all the sages can footnote the tables turned to wordsworth the stoic would present himself as one of whose smooth-rubbed soul can cling, nor form, nor feeling, great or small, a reasoning, self-sufficing thing, an intellect, all in all. Footnote, a poet's epitaph. End footnote. And perhaps in that verse he had the Stoic in his mind. Of course, in many essential points, Wordsworth differs from the tenets and ideals of Stoicism nothing for example could be further removed from it than his inclination of humility his insistence on man's walking by admiration love and faith his spiritualistic as determined from materialistic pantheism the distinction which he tacitly draws between the deity and external nature his sentimentalism his fervid humanity his sympathy all in fine that makes and marks the poet's heart from Platonism, he adopts the use he has made of the doctrine of anamnesis, or the remembrance of what was experienced in a pre-existent state, and the doctrine of ideas or essence, as in the quote, Ode on the Intimations of Immortality, unquote. in the quote, Evening Ode, unquote. and in the Sonnets, which begins, quote, I heard parenthesis alas twas only in a dream end end where the note proves his acquaintance with the fatal, while its sublime influence pervades his poems we see it directly in his habitual employment of the term shows as in the poet's epitaph the outward shows of sky and earth of hill and valley he has viewed THE IMPULSES OF DEEPER BIRTH HAVE COME TO HIM IN SOLITUDE AND IN THE SUBLIME PASSAGE IN THE EXCURSION THAT WHAT WE FEEL OF SORROW AND DESPAIR FROM RUIN AND FROM CHANGE AND ALL THE GRIEF THAT PASSING SHOWS OF BEING LEAVE BEHIND. BEING IS CAPITALIZED. FOOTNOTE THE POET'S EPITAPH 948 END FOOTNOTE or again where he speaks of reading the shows of things with an unworthy eye but i need not multiply instances platonism permeates his highest work and mixed with stoicism is in truth the basis of his metaphysics wordsworth's philosophy would have been quite possible without stoicism as it is it was probably altogether independent of it but it would not have been possible without platonism some people have tried to make out that wordsworth was a hegelian he probably never read a line of hegel in his life wordsworth was not a learned man he was one of the most original men who ever lived all that he got from outsiders in the way of philosophy was probably i say probably because it is not known what he might have picked up from others And from Coleridge particularly a slight acquaintance with some of the dialogues of Plato. End of chapter eight, part one.